This past Monday, April 16th, I think we're all aware that it was a difficult day for a lot of people. Certainly up here in the Northeast, we had a storm going through, or the ending of it that had wrecked havoc up along the Atlantic seaboard. I was supposed to be at a conference Monday and Tuesday. Uh, we canceled it because of winter driving conditions and it was unsafe to go. And then, of course, here in the more southern areas and lower elevations, we had a lot of water. In fact, uh, several local governments declared states of emergency because of so much flooding from creeks and lakes and rivers and, and things, and people's houses were flooded and businesses were closed, and a lot of you had a really difficult time getting anywhere. Some of you gave up on Monday. You turned around and came home because you couldn't get there from here, at least on Monday. Even here at the church, even though three of us checked the water levels on Saturday, or Sunday night, but we were surprised Monday morning. Uh, Jimmy got me out of bed about 6.30 and said, Dad, Dad! And we had four inches of water downstairs. It seems like we just got through patching everything from last time this happened. Some of you are still trying to dry out your basements. We understand that. That's disaster. There were several who actually died in this as well. But certainly far worse than the storm here was the murder of 32 people and wounding of many others than at Virginia Polytechnic University in Blacksburg, Virginia. I am not going to repeat the name of the killer. He's received enough notoriety and he should just be forgotten. He's really unimportant. His evil actions shock us even though really by this point in time we should not be surprised that there are those who are more than willing to do the bidding of the devil who was a murderer from the very beginning, according to what Jesus said in John 8:44. For us more locally, the murder of the entire Mori family in Fishkill in January was another example of that same evil, but one that still bothers a lot of us when we drive by that house, or at least what remains of the house, uh, on 82. Disaster is what occurred Monday morning, but those are certainly not the only disasters that occur, are they? We're very familiar with it. We read or hear about natural disasters that occur in the United States and around the world. There's earthquakes, hurricanes, typhoons, fires, floods, droughts. Every once in a while we even get a volcano in there. Natural disasters. The December 2004 tsunami caused by an earthquake off Sumatra killed over 200,000 people. Estimates range from about 215 to in the 260s. Millions were left homeless. The coastal areas of Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, since I've got relatives down there, they're still trying to recover. My one cousin, she's still in one of the uh, federal trailers. They haven't been able to get their home fixed yet. We also know about disasters that called by, caused by men's bent toward evil. We live in a time when the world has become affected by homicidal Islamic fanatics that won't only plant bombs in an effort to kill people, they will strap them on themselves and then go into some public place. It could be a, a, a marketplace, a restaurant, school, a bus, train, subway, wherever, and they'll blow themselves up in this perverted idea that somehow that they'll gain their way through that. They themselves thinking that that's going to take them to heaven. And understand in Islam, the only guarantee for their idea of heaven is through martyrdom. Other than that, there's no guarantee. So a lot of people are willing to do that. But it is all part of a larger plan that uh, terrorists use to seek to control other nations, other societies. Because if you can get them to f have fear, then you can get them to do what you want. 
The greater tragedy here is that so many do give in to that and it only leads to more terrorism because once they can accomplish it once, then they'll use the same method to try and get to their next goal. And we're familiar with that. We read it in the papers all the time. And we only get a small portion of it, only that which generally affects us. But these things are happening constantly. We also must remember that disaster does not have to be widespread. It does not have to involve multiple people in order to be a disaster. In fact, anything can be a disaster because it can also be personal. You don't have to have a regional flood in order to have a disaster in your home. All you have to do is have a water pipe break and not know it. And you're flooded and it's a disaster. Uh, a fire doesn't have to cover hundreds of acres to be a disaster. All it has to do is break out in your home and destroy your stuff. That's a disaster. A uh, loved one does not have to die in some terrorist activity, doesn't have to die at some unusual method, uh, you know, got killed in a lava flow to be a disaster. It can also happen when a car accident or a result of sickness. But when one loved dies, that's a disaster to you personally. Disasters happen both on large scales and on individual levels. But where do they come from? What do they mean? How are you supposed to respond to them? That's the subject I want to talk about this morning. Well, first of all, where do disasters come from? There are four sources of disaster. The first, in an event I think in light of Monday's actions, is we should talk about man. Man intentionally causes disasters. And that is what happened at Virginia Polytechnic University. Now, it's important to point this out because there are some that have an incorrect view of God's sovereignty and want to make him responsible for the evil actions of others. And he's not. The problem is that man is sinful, does not want to obey God, refuse to obey God, and will follow the dictates of his current boss, the devil, who is the God of this age, and commit evil. And Monday was an act of evil by one man against other people. Now, is God sovereign? Yes, he is sovereign, but he is not the author or cause of evil. His very attributes preclude it. I've listed some of these for you, along with a few of the references. God is holy. He is completely separate. He's other than we are. 1 Peter 1.16, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7 describe that. God is righteous. Acts 17.31, Genesis 18.25, among many others. He is loving, 1 John 4, 8, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Our God is good, Mark 10, 18, Acts 14, 7, James 1, 7. Our God is also truthful. He does not lie. He is not capable of it. Jeremiah 17, 3, Numbers 23, 19, and we can go on and on about the attributes of God. God's attributes preclude him from being the origin of the antithesis of his own being. Actually, it is in God's sovereignty and these righteous attributes that we find that restrain evil. It is his goodness demonstrated in the stories of those who survive, those who were not killed or maimed and, and just timing issues. Why did that happen? Many of us remember September 11, 2001, and many people who survived it or in, did not end up being there for really odd reasons. Are they really odd reasons? Are they just coincidence? Or is this God's sovereign, merciful hand to individuals? The bottom line of this is don't blame God when man intentionally disobeys him. The evil is coming from humans. And neither should the victims be blamed. That often happens. In fact, I think we've already been seeing it coming out. But the next couple of weeks, you'll continue to see so-called experts 
psychoanalyze this fellow who committed suicide in the end himself, and uh, they'll place blame on all sorts of people for what he did, except on him. The guilt rests on him alone. That young man purposely disobeyed everything that God has says about how we're to treat one another and shot down his classmates and professors. Now, the same thing is going on in the worldwide war against terrorism. There are many that blame America. They blame our society. They blame our military. It's our fault that Islamic terrorists do what they do. But the guilt stands alone on every single individual who acts contrary to what God has commanded and commits an evil act. The guilt is on them and them alone. You need to understand that Islamic terrorist groups hate America because we are not Islamic. Period. That's why they hate us. That is their bent. It is a religious war. Understand that. That's one reason why America is having such a tough time dealing with it. Our leaders don't understand it. They're still thinking it's some sort of political thing. It's not. It is fundamental religious war. That's what they themselves declare. But it's also against us because we support Israel. And when you boil all this down, what we have here is actually the wicked actions of those expressions of satanic control. That's what we see around us, and it causes disaster. These are people who follow a false religion or a false god, a false god who loves death instead of the creator who has given us life and loves life. And that's why we have the evil. The murders on Monday are not only a disaster intentionally caused, are not the only disasters intentionally caused by man. We have now become aware, like Israel and many other nations around us, that there are those who are just plain evil and hate us and will do acts of evil against us because they love evil. And that's occurred throughout the centuries. Consider last century how many despots there have been that have created all sorts of disaster. There was Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Holocaust. But there are also Holocausts in Armenia, Russia, China, Cambodia, what was Yugoslavia. That all occurred in the last century. All crimes, intentional acts of evil, and again, even if it only affects one person, it's still disaster that person. Man's intentional evil is a cause of disaster, but also man's unintentional actions. There are actions that occur because of ignorance, mistakes, neglect. Cars crash, ships sink, trains wreck, fires get out of control. Even attempts to help can do wrong. Many of you are familiar with Joni Erickson Tata. She's had quite a ministry over many decades now, but her paralysis was caused by the rescuers. She had dived off a pier and struck her neck, but in getting her out of the water, it cracked the rest of the neck and severed her spine. That's why she's paralyzed, people who are helping. So accidents can cause disaster as well. Another source of disaster is nature, but understand that nature simply follows the laws of physics, and man's problem is he keeps getting in the way of the laws of physics, and he's where he shouldn't be, at least at that particular point in time. That's what nature does. Earthquakes and volcanoes occur, why? Well, because there are pressures within the earth, and they release that pressure. When there's pressure along a fault plane, and when that pressure builds up and exceeds the frictional resistance, the rock formations slip, voila, earthquake. In a lava dome, it is less dense than the surrounding material, and so the pressure around it forces it up. When it gets up high enough, it breaks through the surface, and you get a volcano. Uh, the differences in heating and cooling 
of the Earth's surface give rise to high pressure areas and low pressure areas. And the difference between the two zones, we end up with weather patterns as pressure areas move to low pressure and we get wind. And with the wind, we get all sorts of things. And pretty soon we get storm systems. And sometimes those are very large storm systems. We get droughts, we can get floods, we can get blizzards, we can get blistering heat because the Earth is trying to follow the laws of physics. Most of the worst disasters that have ever occurred in the history of mankind have simply occurred because nature follows the laws of physics and man was in its path. Let's face it. If you lived in Minnesota, you'd have to expect a few chilly days, wouldn't you? Here in the Northeast, we have to expect that once in a while we're going to get a blizzard. And it's not going to be nice driving out there. We can expect that. If you live in Florida, expect that every once in a while you will have a hurricane come through. Right? It's going to occur. If uh, you build your house on a floodplain, as many have been finding out here recently, sometimes they didn't know it was a floodplain, but it was a floodplain, don't be surprised when it rains a lot and you get water where there wasn't water a little while ago. Your house will be flooded. If you live on the side of a volcano, someday there may be a lava flow going through your backyard. And if you build, as some folks I know in California have done, right on top of the fault plane, don't be surprised that if you get shaken out of bed on occasion. You will, okay? Nature is following the laws of physics. Man simply puts himself in the way. And so we have disasters. There's also supernatural ways that disaster happen, and Satan is a cause of many of them. If you've read the book of Job, you know that Satan caused Job all sorts of problems. And yet in there, we also find that Satan's power is limited. But he is a source of disaster. To Job, he was the uh, instigator of all sorts of terrible things against Job, theft, murder, and even a supernatural wind that took off the, or destroyed the house that Job's children were in and resulted in their deaths. He was also the source of Job's physical afflictions, all the sores that he had. And finally, another source of disaster is God himself. The Lord himself will bring disasters. He can strike an individual. He can strike an entire nation. He may even strike the entire world. Miriam grumbled against Moses and shows she was struck with leprosy. You might recall that from Exodus. Korah, not long afterward, decided to instigate a rebellion against Moses. And God judged him by having the ground open up and swallow him and his family. It was judgment of individuals. Egypt had refused to let Israel go, and so God sent ten plagues. And those ten plagues destroyed the Egyptian economy, destroyed the Egyptian power and might, and it killed a lot of their children. Pharaoh's power was destroyed, and then his army was destroyed as well. The Canaanite tribes allowed themselves to descend in complete debauchery and utter evil including the offering of their children to their false gods by burning them in fire. God destroyed them to make way for the Israelites. And then sometimes the world as well, at least once already, and we know it's also reserved for destruction by fire in the future. Noah lives in a world that becomes so wicked that Scripture describes mankind in this way. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And so God sent a flood and wiped out all of mankind except for the eight they're on the ark. First Peter tells us, or second Peter tells us that the world is reserved for a judgment by fire to come. So God does send disaster and judgment. We find in scripture case after case where God directly intervenes against man 
and brings disaster. And since the scriptures clearly declare God's sovereignty, he has the ability to control whatever means to bring that about, including sending evil people or allowing them to do it. How often did he judge Israel with surrounding nations? He uses nature and even at times Satan. God is still in the business of intervening in the lives of men in the midst of the various calamities that come. It can come directly from his hand or through some other action, through his sovereignty. Again, the declarations of Job, the Psalms, the Proverbs, they're still true. That hasn't changed. God sends the snow, the rain, the wind, the storm. Nature may follow physical laws, but God's hand still guides it. In addition, Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We've got to remember that our God is a holy God. He is a loving God. He is a compassionate God. He is a merciful God, but he's also a God who judges. And there are times that his wrath still comes out against the ungodly who will not submit in humble obedience to him. Remember that's true for the Christian as well, and that's why when we were having communion, I always give the warning about what happened to those in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11.30. They were in sin, and so God did judge them. Some sick, some had even died. Disasters happen, they arise from different sources. What do they tell us? What do they communicate to us? Well, they communicate several things. The first thing they communicate is a simple fact, and that is man is sinful. Man is sinful. Whether intentional or unintentional, disasters tell us man is sinful. Remember, sin just means missing the mark. God has set a standard. If man doesn't meet the standard, it's sin. It is the failure to achieve that which is good and right before God, and so it includes both of acts of commission, those things you actually do, as well as acts of omission, something you failed to do. Both are sin. Now, we have no problem understanding that willful acts are sinful. We have no lack of understanding the actions of people such as Adolf Hitler, Emperor Hirohito, Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, we can go back to Saddam Hussein and the stuff he did, our current war against uh, Al-Qaeda, and those are in control of that. They are evil people, and they've committed a lot of evil actions. We have no problem saying, yes, we understand. They are sinful. We understand that someone who commits a crime is sinful. We also need to understand the failure to do right is also a sin. The failure to do right is also a sin. A car crash caused by someone who was drunk or someone who simply was driving when they shouldn't because they're too tired and they fell asleep is still sin, and it causes disaster. One is more heinous than the other, but both are still sinful. When we trace disasters to a human origin, we can be sure we find a powerful reminder of man's sinful nature. Adam's fall has far-reaching effects in all of his offspring, which is all of us. And the more we're aware of our fallen nature, the more we're understanding of how we are causing suffering to others. And the more we understand that as Christians, the more we should desire to alleviate that and prevent it from happening to begin with. Disasters of human origin, again, communicate. Man is fallen. Man is sinful. Another thing that disaster communicates is that nature is cursed. We are living in a time when the neo-pagan idea of... of there's a lot of environments out, out there that are just they're nuts. Jonathan was telling me at a college campus they had these people come in for Earth Day 
They're bizarre people because they want to worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's the bottom line of it. These people will tell you that disasters such as fires, floods, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions are just nature's way of renewing itself. You've heard that? These are good things that happen. Nature is renewing itself. But when a natural disaster occurs, we do not see nature renewing itself. That's simply idiotic. Okay? Instead of nature renewing itself, it is trying to recover from all the damage inflicted upon it. I'm old enough to remember Mount St. Helens blew its top off 27 years ago, May 1980. Remember, we were collecting, we had friends up there, and they sent out, we got some of the ash and stuff from it. And we got to go by there just a couple years after that, and we saw what was still the devastation uh, along the Tuttle River. It still wiped out. But you can take pictures even now from what it currently looks at Mount St. Helens and compare that to pictures taken in the 70s and tell me that nature's renewing itself? This is a good thing? Any of the pictures from the 70s says it sure was a lot nicer then than it is now. Nature's renewing itself only in trying to recover from the disaster that happened upon it. I can take you to many places in Southern California where fires had burned through 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And there's not much growing now. What once had been lush and green with trees is now just the hardiest of uh, wildflowers and scrub. It hasn't come back. Nature's not renewing itself. It's trying to recover. Romans 8 tells us this. Romans 8, 19 through 22. It tells us plainly, nature is cursed. Paul says this, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. When we see the recovery after a disaster happens that's, uh, that's occurring in nature, what we see is God's merciful hand and how well he has created everything. But disasters are not a good thing, even in nature. Natural disaster reminds us nature itself is cursed. It is longing for the day of redemption. The other thing that disasters do, it communicates to us that God is powerful. And that's regardless of the origin of calamity. Anyone who's ever been to any kind of natural disaster, whatever it was, knows there's no denying God's power when you see these things. Over and over again, we find that Scripture used the power of what God has created to demonstrate that God himself is powerful. And that includes nature. In Job 38... Through 41, we have recorded God himself declaring his power to Job by pointing out what he's created and his control of it. For example, in verses uh, 38, chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, 31 through 33, God speaks of the vastness of the universe, and he is the one that set the constellations in place. Have you ever had a nice clear night, and you look up and you you get that sense of how small you are in the universe, and God has set every single one of those in place? In place. He is powerful. In uh, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 38, God declares that he is the one that has set the boundaries of the sea. It wasn't an accident. He has done this. 
in uh, 38 verses 9 through 24 and 34 through 38, he declares himself the one that controls the weather, the clouds, the rain, the wind, the lightning, the thunder. He brings the cold of winter. He brings the warmth of summer. God's in control of it. In addition, he declares in those chapters the power of creatures he has made, including Behemoth and Leviathan. And the descriptions match those of dinosaurs. And Leviathan, even a fire-breathing one at that. Yes, a fire-breathing dinosaur, a dragon. Man, in comparison, insignificant. And that was his point to Job. Who are you to question me when I'm the one who's created these things? It's not just the power of God that's being declared to Job, but also his mercy, his tenderness, his compassion, because God cares for his creation. He cares for the creatures he has made and that is seen over and over. Some have said the disasters that have occurred in the recent years in the United States are the acts of an angry God who is demonstrating his displeasure, his wrath against wicked Americans. Well, perhaps there's some truth in that statement. However, to whatever degree that is true, we must also understand the message is not just to the sinners who have received the immediate judgment. Over in Luke 13, verse 14, Jesus recounts a local disaster. There was a tower that collapsed, and it killed 18 people. And the religious righteous people were saying, all these were terrible sinners that this thing had happened to them. And he warned them. He said this, Do you suppose those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, the point is simply this. All people are deserving of God's judgment of their sins. All people. Those who suffer disaster are no more wicked than those who do not. Do not use that as some, some means to make your evaluation of it. Those who were murdered down at Virginia Tech are no more evil than those who did not get murdered. You see the point? God's judgment is against all and can be at any time. Rather, it's God's mercy that all this should be immediately aware of is why didn't more die? Why weren't more slaughtered? It's because God is merciful. And yes, there are those who will suffer at the immediacy of his holy wrath because of sin. But that doesn't mean the others are not sinful. It's simply that God has extended his mercy to them. We should marvel as much about God's mercy and grace as seeing the story of survival as we do about his wrath in those who have undergone the effects of a disaster. Disasters communicate the evil of man. It communicates the curse upon nature communicates the power of God in displaying both his wrath and judgment and his mercy and grace. But how do we respond to all this? What do we do in response to it? Disasters, both those widespread and those that are personal, they're going to happen. It's part of human existence. If you have not had one yet, you will. It's going to be part of life. It is part of life because we live in a sin-fallen world. How do you respond? Well, a person left to follow their own natural reactions could respond in a number of ways. None of them are good. But you will recognize all of them because we've all done them and probably still tend to do them even if we've walked with Christ for a long time. The response of Pharaoh to all the disasters, the plagues thrown against him was resistance. 
it wouldn't, he wouldn't change his mind. He was still going to do it his way, carry out his course of life, and so it just escalated. Again, his resistance eventually cost Egypt its glory, Pharaoh his kingdom, and many of his people their very lives. Some resisted. In 2 Kings 20, we find King Hezekiah was told by Isaiah, the prophet, that his illness would kill him, and he went into depression. Scripture says he turned his face to the wall and wept bitterly. It's a sign of depression. He had seen the Lord do all sorts of great and marvelous things in his, his reign as king. But Hezekiah's life still centered on himself, so the news of a personal disaster drove him to depression. In 1 Samuel, we find another response, that of fear. 1 Samuel 13, King Saul had raised his army. He had 3,000 men. Well, the Philistines came against him. They had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the text says, people like sandwiched on the seashore in abundance. In the midst of this, they believed that disaster was imminent. And so they hid in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars, holes and pits, wherever they could, and they trembled. They shook with fear is what the scripture says. And when a disaster looks inevitable upon you, fear can come upon you, grip you, and then you do things you probably shouldn't have done. Remember some years ago, we were in California, and there was a 5.3 very strong aftershock. I was happened to be in a store, and 5.3 strong enough, it knocks things off the shelf, and you, you see things curving. It's, well, it's actually kind of fun if you're not getting hurt. But then I'm a native, so hey, Californians are odd anyways. But a lot, a lot of people started screaming. They were fearful, and they ran to the front of the store, but guess what's in the front of the store? Plate glass. That's not the place to run. Fear can grip you, you do stupid things. But that's what disaster does. Fear, panic, another response. Another common response to disaster is bargaining. We find that example in the book of Jonah. It's getting worse and worse, the, and uh, they start bargaining. They start throwing things over. They are asking everybody, pray to your God, whatever God you've got. Until they finally, Jonah says, as God tells, is telling me to tell you, throw me overboard, I'm the problem. And then they still try and bargain. They don't want to do this and be responsible for his death. They try and bargain. Well, people still do that a lot. In the midst of disaster, you find many sinners making a lot of desperate promises to God, which they soon forget as soon as the danger is passed. It's sort of like the shipwreck victim whose promises to God kept diminishing the closer he got to shore. Well, at the same time, you'll find that there are the self-righteous, and they respond with condemnation. This simply goes back to what I was saying earlier from Luke 13. They must be horrible sinners, and so they become condemning, judgmental, when reality is they should be grateful for God's mercy upon them, seek repentance. All are deserving of judgment. It's only God's mercy that prevents it. So the natural response to disaster can be denial, resistance, anger, depression, fear, bargaining with God. It could be a self-righteous condemnation of others or any combination of those things. But none of these are good. How does God want us to respond? Well, we just saw from Luke 13 that we can't be self-righteous, can we? We must be humble. We must be repentant ourselves. Understand clearly that homosexual AIDS victims are reaping the just consequences of their sin because Romans 1.27 tells us exactly that. They bear in their own selves the penalty of what they're doing. 
But the godly response is not condemnation, and there are too many that do that. Instead, it should be praise and thanksgiving for God's mercy to you, while a heart of compassion compels you to act in concern for them and helping them, while at the same time preaching the gospel that they may repent from their sins and receive God's forgiveness. I also need to not fear. I don't need to resist. I should not be angry or depressed about disaster that I may face in my life. Why? Because the godly response recognizes that your life is totally in the Lord's hands to use however he sees fit. You're in his hands. My life here is unimportant except how it is used for the glory of my creator. Like Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life that I now live, I live for who? For Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the point of our lives. I can have peace in the midst of anything because Christ has overcome it. In this world, I will have tribulation, but I can have peace because he's overcome the world, John 16.33. That is in accordance with the very nature of being a Christian, which is simply following Christ. And the more your life is marked by Christ's likeness, the more you respond with godliness than with the natural responses, which we all recognize in ourselves. Whatever the disaster is, the more I walk with Christ, the more I start doing this. Resting in God's peace, living for his glory, praising God for his mercy, and having compassion on those who are suffering. So instead of fear, there is peace. Instead of depression, there is joy. Instead of anger, there is grace. Instead of revenge, I seek forgiveness. Instead of tragedy, I find triumph. There's a definition for a successful Christian. This comes from a sermon from some years ago, but I still like the definition. A successful Christian is a person who is saved from their sins by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as an adopted child of God is bringing glory to his name by being conformed in the image of Jesus, by submitting themselves to the will of God and faithfully pursuing holiness and blamelessness along with serving the Lord and doing the good works he has prepared beforehand. If that marks your life, you're a successful Christian. That's our goal. That's what we're striving to be. And the person who is a successful Christian will do that in the midst of whatever disaster they're facing. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that is what God is doing in changing our life. Monday morning, I was not happy when I came over and started sloshing around the, the, the basement of the church. I was not a happy camper, and yet God was merciful. We had a lot of people came out and helped. We got it cleaned up. We thought of several other things of how we can do this a lot faster this time. And then uh, Wednesday, it was Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday, we received in the mail a check from someone who does not even come to our church for $5,000 because they want to help us. Now, is God merciful? Yes, he is. But so often we're short-sighted and we want to complain about it and say, I can't, we don't have a budget for this, we can't handle this. God knows what we need beforehand, and so we're going to be able to alleviate this permanently. We're going to try and dig a bass pond out there. Well, I don't know if we can get the fish out there, but we are going to dig an area where the water can go instead of in the church. God is good, but I have to keep in mind that he is good, and even when it looks bad at the moment, he's doing something. Disaster as bad as it was at Virginia Tech, there are 30-something Christian organizations on campus. 
Tim was telling me about uh, one girl had an idea and shared it and it went rapidly around all the Christian ministries on campus and they started been holding prayer meetings. That went to other groups and now there are hundreds of Christian ministries on other campuses that have become diligent in prayer ministry. An IFCA church, sister church of ours, is in Blacksburg. It was the one that was started by Henry Morris of um, Creation, uh, Institute for Creation Research fame. That church is busy ministering there. Their pastor has, who was there, that's a friend of ours, is, is currently a, a doctor and teaches counseling at Masters College in California. They have a group that's going down there to minister on campus. In the midst of horrible things, God can bring good things out. But I need to be doing what he says is successful. I'm looking for the opportunities. The question then really is what really matters to you? Because what matters to you is, is how you're going to react to these kinds of events. Don't wait for disaster to come and before you find out, though. They will come, and it will test you. Your faith will be tested, and it's going to mature you, or it's just to let you know where you need to mature. But you don't have to wait for that. Are you living for eternity now? Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 are verses that we need to take to heart. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what we have to have our eyes focused on all the time, not just wait for disaster. We should be praying all the time, not just when we're desperate. Now, the basis of all this is learning to trust the Lord in all circumstances. The prophet Jeremiah understood this, and so he could deal with disaster. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah wrote five poems they were compiled together, and we call that the Book of Lamentations. As he looked over the ruins of Jerusalem, he wrote this in chapter 3, verses 22, and 20, 22 through 25. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. There's a lot of comfort in that, isn't there? The hymn writer paraphrased it this way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Now that you've got the hang of it, we'll do it again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Father, we are very grateful for your faithfulness to us in all circumstances and all things. We desire to be like Jeremiah was, that in the midst of whatever was happening, any disaster, we can proclaim your mercies to be new, that your faithfulness is steadfast. Give us eyes to see the truth, and Father, then prod us to use our voices to proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen.